Hello, I'm David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're talking to Yuval Noah Harari about human beings, machines and the future of democracy. Yuval Harari is the author of two books. The first, Sapiens, was a number one bestseller pretty much everywhere in the world, I think. That's because it was about everyone. It was about the history of the human race. The follow-up, the book that we're going to be talking to him about, Homo Deus, is about what comes next. What does it mean to live in a world where it's possible, maybe quite soon, that there are going to be machines that are smarter than we are? I absolutely loved Homo Deus, but not everybody has. We're in Cambridge, which is a town full of tech people, and I know that one or two of them, who actually build the machines that Harari is talking about, think that he's oversold on how smart the machines are going to be. If you look at some of the newspaper coverage of this book and you look below the line, as I've done, you'll see some tech people saying, I bet this guy is an arts graduate. I bet he's a historian. I bet he actually has never built one of these machines. People like that always think they're smarter than machines, they're smarter than they are ever going to be. So I'm an arts graduate too. So you've got two historians talking about machines they've never built. So maybe we're both oversold on this. But I'm absolutely certain that he's right, that the implications for politics of living in this new machine age are absolutely massive. And it's only going to get more serious. And that's what we're talking about. I met him when he was in the UK to promote the book, massive events around the country. He came to speak with me in a musty oak panelled room in Trinity College, Cambridge. It was a boiling hot day outside and it was freezing cold in this room. It was dark. There were very dead, very white, very male portraits on the wall. It was a kind of relic of a world where a few human beings thought they had all the knowledge and all the power and they were probably right. It's not like that anymore. Other people have the knowledge, other people have the power. That's what I'm going to be talking to Yuval Harari about and about the possibility that there may be some machines that have more knowledge and more power than we do. I started by talking to him about one of the ideas that's at the heart of his book. It sounds a bit abstract. It really isn't. It's the difference between intelligence and consciousness. If that does sound abstract, stick with this because it gets political very quickly. In human beings and other animals, consciousness and intelligence go together to such an extent that many people think about them as the same thing. But they're actually quite different. Uh, intelligence basically is the ability to solve problems, whereas consciousness is the ability to feel things, to have feelings, emotions, uh, subjective experiences. Now, in the case of humans, we use our feelings in order to solve problems. Our intelligence, to a large extent, is emotional intelligence. But it doesn't have to be like that. And in the case of computers and artificial intelligence, what we are seeing is amazing progress as far as intelligence goes without any progress whatsoever in consciousness. If you think about the development of computers since the 1940s and 1950s, so there has been immense development in intelligence, but exactly zero development in consciousness. The first computers in the 1940s had absolutely no consciousness, and the most advanced computers today have also no consciousness whatsoever. They can beat you at chess or the game of Go or drive a car or whatever, but they don't feel any joy, any fear, any hope. 
what this means is that whereas the evolution of organic beings relied on this coupling of consciousness and intelligence, now we are seeing an evolution of a very different kind of entities, highly intelligence, but non-conscious artificial intelligence algorithms. And the big question this poses is what is really more important, more important for the economic system, for the political system, for the military? What do they need? Do they need consciousness or intelligence? Until today, this was a theoretical question uh, that maybe interested some philosophers, but it had no practical implications. Now it is becoming a practical question. And the frightening thing to realize is that for the system, for the economic and military system, consciousness is irrelevant. They just need intelligence. The army needs a system that is able to identify terrorists and kill them. The economy needs a taxi that can take you from point A to point B as efficiently and as cheaply as possible if it can do it without any feelings very well. So what does that mean for us then, the people who are still locked together with intelligence and consciousness coupled? Because one of the claims you make in your book is that one of these things that these machines can know about us intelligently but without any feeling, they don't care, is about our own consciousness. They can know things about our desires, our wants, from our habits. Mm. So what is the implication of having machines that are super intelligent but without feelings for people who have feelings? Well, there are two potential implications. First of all, that if these machines indeed become more intelligent than us, at least in particular fields, they will push humans out of the job market. And we might see in the 21st century the creation of a huge new class, uh, the useless class. Billions of people devoid of any economic uh, usefulness and therefore also devoid of political importance. Just as the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century created the urban working class, the proletariat, and much of the social and political history of the 19th and 20th century revolved around this class, so the new important class of the 21st century may be the useless class. This is the, the, the first implication. The second implication is that institutions or uh, mechanisms like democratic elections and free market economics might become obsolete once you have an external algorithm that understands you and your feelings and your desires better than you understand yourself. In humanist politics and economics, the feelings of the individuals are the highest authority. There is nothing beyond that. The voter knows best, the customer is always right. But if the Amazon algorithm knows my feelings better than me, then it becomes an authority higher than the voter, higher than the uh, customer. If you think about the U.S. elections, coming U.S. elections in November, I don't know if it's happening in practice, but theoretically, Facebook has the data to decide the elections. I mean, such elections are usually decided by the swing voters, and Facebook, I think, if it wants, can know who are the 50,000 voters that still haven't made up their mind whether they want to vote Republican or Democrat or, I don't know, stay at home. And also, Facebook, in principle, has the data to know what Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton need to say or to do in order to swing those votes in their favor. Even more interestingly, 
At present, in democratic elections, uh, we privilege the feelings of the voters on a particular day, the day of elections. And very often, people have certain political views for maybe three and a half years. And then in the few weeks before the elections, all kinds of scandals and all kinds of spin doctors who create political magic, they swing the opinions of enough individuals in order to decide the elections. And this is a bit unfair because we ignore the feelings, the desires, the emotions of the past three and a half years. Now, if you allow Google or Facebook to vote for me, they know who I am and what I want and what my emotions were for the entire four years since the last elections. So there is no need to privilege my opinions and emotions on the last few, few days before the election. It's true. One of the things that struck me for a while now is how weird it is that we're still so reliant on polls and opinion polling. And we use this incredibly crude mechanism, which is we ask people how they think they're going to vote. <laughs> Facebook knows better how they're going to vote than they do. So why do we ask them? And, and polls have been, you know, the polling industry has not made progress in the last 25 years. You know, during the age of the digital revolution, polling has gone backwards. And it's, we are attached to the idea that the individual is autonomous, not just in feeling and choice, but in knowledge. So the individual knows what the individual prefers. Mm -hmm. And the implication of what you say is that actually we already have machines that know better than we do what it is that we prefer. Mm -hmm. And this has implications not just obviously for politics, it has implications for everything else. Let's come back a bit at the end to, to questions about contemporary politics now, okay. because also there's a, obviously a question about time frames here. I mean, I don't think the election in November is going to be settled this way, mm -hmm. but... <laughs> 10, 20 years, who knows? But one of the things you say in your book, in a broader perspective, is that in the 20th century, the fear was one of the political fears, the political dystopia was sort of big brother politics. The idea of these all-powerful states, they may not be all-knowing, they don't have all the knowledge, although there's sometimes a suggestion that they do, but they have the power. But now what we're seeing is a kind of, with this uncoupling, a fracturing of individuals. So it's not that individuals are confronting something that's bigger than them, mm -hmm. but sort of modelled on the individualistic democratic principle, but they're confronting something that's going to fragment them. Mm. So how does that work politically? I mean, I, your book has so many fascinating claims, but, and a lot of them have political mm -hmm. implications. What does it mean to say that individuals are not going to be confronted by more powerful states, but by states that are going to break them up? Mm. I think the transition we are seeing is from individuals to individuals. The idea of the individual, which really goes back to the Christian mythology about the soul, the eternal soul, is that um, in essence you have some inner core which is indivisible. It's the soul, the spirit, the human spark. It's your true authentic self. And your task as an individual, whenever you confront an important choice in life, whether it's about your career, your love life, or your political opinion, is to somehow get away from all the outside noise, from what you see on television, from all the spin doctors, from the neighbors, everything, and get in touch with your true authentic self and just follow your heart, listen to yourself. This is like the big slogan of, of humanism. This assumes that there is such a thing as an individual, as an indivisible core within yourself, which is authentic. This is 18th century mythology. I mean, if you listen to present-day biologists, they will tell you there is no such thing as an indivisible core, which is your authentic self. In truth, 
humans are individuals, which means they are a collection of biochemical mechanisms. And if you understand these different mechanisms and how they interact, that's it. There is nothing beyond these mechanisms, which is the real, true essence. Now, in the 20th century, nobody could understand these inner mechanisms. Even if the KGB followed you around everywhere and recorded everything you do, they did not have the biological knowledge and they did not have the computing power necessary to process all the data. So the humanist mythology still made sense in practice because nobody understood you. Nobody understood your feelings. But in the 21st century, the political and economic systems, the data giants like Facebook, like Google, like Amazon, they have or they are gaining the biological knowledge and the computing power necessary to understand these inner mechanisms. And I've just recently seen a Disney film, uh, Inside Out. Have you seen it? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, this is it. If Disney abandons the humanist mythology, this is it. I mean, for decades, Disney has been selling kids all over the world and adults this mythology that you are an individual self and you just have to listen to yourself and follow your heart and everything will be perfect. And then you watch Inside Out and you have this girl, Riley, the hero, and she's just a robot which is managed by internal biochemical mechanisms which in the film they are personified as joy and sadness and, and, and they walk around the brain and they see how dreams are produced and how emotions are produced and there is no inner core. There is no self there is no free will, it's just the interaction of various biochemical mechanisms, and this is now what Disney is telling kids. And yet, in that film, and also with Google and Facebook, they still pay tribute to the idea of the inner core that makes us who we are. Even in that film, the girl at the end, we're meant to believe that she has an identity, and Facebook and Google still play on our idea that we are special individuals, partly to mm. sell us stuff, but Disney... So I, my memory of that film is that it was both very sentimental in a kind of classic humanist way and very sinister. You know, it was, but it was the two things, and we're at this kind of crossroads moment. We haven't abandoned humanism. Mm. Um, humanism is just another vehicle for Facebook and Google. And in some ways, the, the sort of rhetoric of, and of states as well democratic states is that you the individual still are the essence it's just we have these new mechanisms which will help you achieve it more efficiently faster mm -hmm. better and so on we haven't abandoned humanism it's just under this huge pressure technically and the rhetoric is still the rhetoric of liberal democratic individualism mm -hmm. yeah the rhetoric is still there it takes a very long time for mythology to disappear uh, we are in a transition period and it's absolutely true that they that they keep something very essential from the humanist mythology, which is saying to people, you're special. The big brother Orwellian fear of the 20th century that you are not special, everybody's part of this huge production line, everybody's just a cog in the machine. No, definitely not. Everybody is special. And in order to understand your speciality, we need to understand the inner workings of your body and brain. And then we can... Um, tailor product just for you. 
Like you have this now, this idea in economics of the long tail, that instead of the 20th century when everybody wears the same clothes and drives the same car, we can now produce the perfect car just for you. And we can now produce the clothes just for you because we understand you as a special entity different from all the other humans in the world, but not because you're individual, but precisely because you are an assemblage of biochemical mechanisms that we monitor and we can understand. And the flip side is that um, discrimination is also going to be tailor-made just for you. In the 20th century, we discriminated groups. In the 21st century, we are going to discriminate particular people. I mean, we don't hire you to the job, not because you're gay and not because you're black and not because you're Muslims, because you're you. We know your DNA and we know your hormonal system and we don't like it. And you cannot ally yourself with other people in your group to protest against discrimination because there are no other people in that group. It's just you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You, that we don't want. The flip side to the long tail is the winner-take-all economy. And, and the two things are going along side by side. So yes, Books that used to sell no copies at all can now sell 5 or 10, 20 copies. But then a few Harry Potter-style books sell to everyone in the world. And yes, Google and Facebook can tailor products that suit us as individuals, but Google and Facebook themselves are something close to a monopoly. Hmm. And so there is that, that, that other thing that's going on here, which is a kind of super elite, a very small group of people or of companies or of institutions that seem to have enormous amounts of power in this long-tail world where everyone has a little bit of what suits them. Mm-hmm. A few people seem to have hoovered up all of the big stuff, <laughs> m- money and power. So is, is it that kind of long-tail future that the middle is squeezed? Hmm. There's lots of tailored personal politics and economics and so on but there's also a huge concentration of power and wealth at the top I mean is that the future that this technology leads towards it's certainly a very distinct possibility I mean we can't I mean technology is not deterministic it can still go in different ways the same way that in the 19th century the industrial revolution produced new revolutionary technologies that could produce very different types of societies with trains and internal combustion engines and electricity, you can build a communist dictatorship or a fascist regime or a liberal democracy. The trains and the electricity, they don't have an opinion what you're going to do with them. So it's the same with this new information technology and biotechnology. But there is a very big danger of a concentration of a lot of power in very few hands If you think about, again, a concrete example, that like the uh, transportation market. So today you have thousands and thousands of taxi drivers and bus drivers and truck drivers. Each of them controls a small share of the transportation market, which also gives them political power because they can, for example, unionize and go on strike and uh, if something happens that they don't like. Now, fast forward 30 years, all the vehicles on the road 
are um, controlled by algorithms, basically by a single algorithm that connects all the different vehicles one to the other. The great promise of self-driving vehicles is not just that the vehicle individually is uh, driving safer and more cheaply than human beings, but that for the first time you can connect all the vehicles on the road one to the other, and then there are no more accidents and, 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 things, and traffic jams and things like that. But the downside is that the entire transport market is now being controlled by a single algorithm, which is being owned by a single corporation, which is owned by a handful of, of billionaires. So all the economic and political clout that originally was divided between thousands and thousands of taxi drivers and bus drivers and so forth, it now belongs to five billionaires. You're right, of course, technology doesn't determine the future that we're going to have. But where's the resistance to this coming from, do you think? Or where is it going to come from? And one version of this, let's bring it back to Donald Trump. I don't think it's going to come from him. But unquestionably, this is a peculiar political moment in that people are very angry. Um, there are these waves of populist anger and they produce these peculiar results like Brexit and so on. That's not, no one quite is certain what it is that it signifies. And one of the puzzles here is that people are often told, particularly in the West, that they are longer lived, better off, healthier, better provided for, better entertained than they have ever been. But they're also angrier in some respects, these supposedly happy people. Is it possible, when I was reading your book, I really felt this quite strongly, that we're just at the beginning of this point, that there is human pushback against this. People aren't stupid, and though no one knows what the future holds, they have a feeling that it doesn't include them. Yeah. Um, not just in employment terms, I mean partly in employment terms, partly because of inequality mm -hmm. and the way that wages have stagnated, but also a broader sense that they are, like, they're not cogs in the machine, they're all being entertained and treated very nicely, mm -hmm. but they are somehow being written out of the future. Mm. Definitely. I think that the anger that drove at least some voters to, to vote for Brexit or driving people in America to vote for Trump is completely justified. They are accurate in sensing that power is shifting away from them. They are no longer in control of their own future. I think they are wrong in their analysis of where the power has shifted to. If voters in the UK think that they are losing power because power is shifting to Brussels, they are wrong. And if voters in the USA think that power is shifting to the establishment, whatever that is, they are wrong. Nobody really knows exactly where the power is shifting. Uh, and this is part of the problem. I think what we are seeing now is that the acceleration of change in the world resulting from the immense amounts of data and the accelerating pace of data processing causes the traditional political institutions that we've inherited from the 20th century to become irrelevant. Nobody really knows where we are heading to. And the amazing thing is that if in the 20th century politics was a battle between grand visions of the future, some terrible visions, but still, even Hitler and Stalin, they had these huge visions about where humanity is heading towards, and politics was the battle between the communist vision of the future, the fascist vision, the liberal vision. Now you look at politics, nobody has any vision about the future of humanity. 
governments are becoming managers. They manage the day-to-day business of the country, that salaries are paid, that roads are being paved, whatever, but they have no vision for where we're going to be in 20 or 30 years. The only place you, you find people who have some kind of serious vision about the future is in the private sector in places like Silicon Valley. You want to hear visions about the future, you don't go to the White House, you don't go to the Kremlin, you go to Google and Facebook and Apple. And I think ordinary voters are, are, are sensing it correctly that not only they personally, but the entire political mechanism that was relatively so successful, in, at least in the late 20th century, is being uh, rendered irrelevant. Do you think that there's a difference, though, given what you say, between the way that this kind of managerial politics is being done in somewhere like China, the non-democratic version, and the democratic version? In that the non-democratic version is still... In the Chinese case, it's still a bet on the state, basically, and the possibility that with enough political will and manpower, actually, Mm -hmm. human power, it is possible to channel some of these forces politically, whereas in the West, I think you're right, there's a sense that people have that politicians have sort of given up on that Mm -hmm. and that they're they're just going to ride the wave. Do you have, I mean, I don't know how you feel about China but do you have any sense that there's a real difference there or actually will these two converge in the next 20-30 years? I think there is a difference in the West the dominant ideology is neoliberalism which basically tell politicians it's good that you're giving up on the future it's not your job your job is really just to manage the the simple day-to-day stuff the really important decisions about the future of humanity will be taken and should be taken by market forces So the fact that you don't understand what is happening and that you don't have any vision for the future, this is excellent, wonderful, good for you and good for us. Um, In China, I think this is the one place where you see more serious thinking about the future. It's not true of all authoritarian regimes. I mean, you don't see it in a place like Russia. I mean, Putin's vision for the future, I mean, you compare Putin with Lenin, it's really amazing. I mean, Lenin has this... Lenin is relying on technology like steam engines and typewriters, and he has this grand vision for the future of humankind. And Putin has far more sophisticated technology than Lenin, but his vision is far, far more limited. It seems to be like going back to the Tsarist empire. So you don't see uh, these kinds of vision for the future in all authoritarian regimes, but in China you do get the sense that because of the... The Communist Party has the feeling that it's going to be around for the foreseeable future for decades and generations, then it can think long-term. And it can think long-term not only about the mere survival of the regime, like in North Korea, but it can think in long-term about where it wants China and, and the world as a whole to be in 20 or 30 years. The big problem with China is because everything is so centralized and this vision is the product of a centralized data processing system, if they get it wrong, then they really get it wrong. I mean, you don't have the checks and balances that are provided in the West by the different branches of government and by the free market and and so forth. So one last question. I read your book. I wrote about it. I, I loved it. But I was having to write about other things as well. So I studied politics for a living and mm-hmm. I had to write something about Jeremy Corbyn and I had to write something about Brexit and so on. And reading your book made that really hard because 
I didn't really care. <laughs> and there's, there's a, and I, I wrote in my review, your book has this kind of vertiginous quality, which I loved, this feeling that you're sort of standing on the edge of a cliff. It's thrilling. Um, and as you say, actually, thinking about the next 80 years, it's almost impossible for any of us to imagine what the world's going to be like. And yet here we are in this moment of political turmoil, caring about will Jeremy Corbyn be re-elected leader of the Labour Party, even will Donald Trump be? Mm-hmm. So do you share, I mean, when you were writing it, is it... I don't know, I haven't spoken to other people who've read it yet, but I imagine other people will have this feeling too, that it's sort of destabilising, thinking about the world and the way you describe it. And it's sometimes kind of hard to get back in, Mm -hmm. but we're going to have to get back in. I mean, if we're going to choose the future that we want in some sense, it will be through politics. Mm. But there is this temptation just to kind of feel we're just on this wave (laughs) and let's just ride it. (laughs) It's too exhausting. Well, when, when I wrote Homo Deus, when I, I wrote the book, I mean, the idea was to um, not to make people feel, oh, we, there, is, there is nothing we can do about it and we can even forget about normal politics because it doesn't matter. I mean, only really just the opposite, mm-hmm. that we need to bring these big issues into the political sphere, into the political debate, because we still have agency. Uh, we can still influence the direction these developments are taking. As I said, technology is never deterministic. I mean, you can't just stop it, but you can influence the direction that it is taken. And I'm very worried that so far there has been extremely little interest and discussion in, in politics about these issues like artificial intelligence or like biotechnology. You look at the election campaign in the US and nobody's talking about it. I mean, they talk about the old stuff, like, you know, Muslim immigration, gay marriage, walls, but, uh, you know, artificial intelligence. And I don't suspect that Donald Trump has these views about AI, which he keeps to himself, because he keeps nothing to himself. So if he doesn't speak about AI, it means it, it really hasn't registered on his radar and on the radar of most voters. And I think that Maybe the the model is what happened, at least to some extent, with global warming, which started in the you know the 1970s and 1980s as in the fringes of the academic and scientific community, people warning, look, this is going to happen, this is real, this is going to change our lives and the lives of our children much more than many traditional political issues. And even though it's still not like the most important political uh, issue today, it's, it's managed to become an, a part of the political agenda. And I hope something like that will happen soon enough with issues like artificial intelligence and biotechnology. But the, it's the soon enough question that's the real question. With global warming, it's not a completely sort of reassuring example. And this is happening faster than that. Mm. I mean, it's completely clear this is, and this is exponential in ways that there are going to be really dramatic shifts. And self-driving cars is one example of this, Mm -hmm. that that are suddenly just going to become ubiquitous. Um, 30, 40 years, if that's the model, so it started in the 70s and 80s, so even the the world of 2050, it's quite hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a fear that the uh, political institutions that we now have that we, and we, we've inherited from the 20th century are just not going to change fast enough in order to confront these issues, which means that the big decisions will be taken either by nobody, by market forces, 
or they will be taken by a very small group of individuals in places like Silicon Valley, whom nobody voted for and they represent nobody, and they don't really have a kind of political commitment of the kind you even find in the Communist Party in China or in, with people like Putin or like Erdogan. Um, so far, I must say that most of the decisions taken by the geeks in Silicon Valley has proven themselves to be quite good. I mean, <laughs> we could have done much, much worse. But still, it's, it's dangerous to put the future, not really only of humanity, it's really the future of life. I mean, the rise of artificial intelligence is going to change things not on the historical level, but really on the biological level. After four billion years of evolution of organic beings, for the first time, life is about to break out into the inorganic realm and we'll start seeing inorganic life forms. And the people taking the decisions about it, you know, a bunch of engineers in, in Silicon Valley. So this is a frightening thought. Yuval Noah Harari. And his book, Homo Deus, is available, well, pretty much everywhere and anywhere. As I said to Yuval in that interview, I was freaked out reading his book because it's about the future of humanity. But as part of my job to think about stuff that's happening week on week, I was meant to be writing about Corbyn. I was meant to be writing about Trump. And sometimes it's hard to think it really matters what's going to happen to the Labour Party when the machines are coming to take over the human race. But on this podcast, we're going to do both. So we want to go deep and talk about what's happening right under the surface, but we're also going to talk about what's happening on the surface because that's really interesting too. And next week, we're coming back with our regular panel and we're going to talk about, well, we'll have to see what happens, but two things we can be pretty confident are going to happen, barring an act of God. The Labour Party will announce the winner of its leadership contest. It may turn out to be Jeremy Corbyn. It probably will, but we will wait and see. And again, barring an act of God or something happening to Hillary Clinton, the first presidential debate will have taken place in the United States. And we're going to be talking about that too. I'd like to thank the people who've helped us get Talking Politics off the ground. Mick Sonics, Charlotte Griffiths, and as always, Catherine Carr. Do rate us on iTunes. We're on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We're Talking Politics. Please join us next time. Get everything for your next roofing project at Menards. Your roof is the first line of defense against the elements. Owens Corning Shingles are designed to offer long-lasting performance while providing ultimate protection. They have a limited lifetime warranty and up to a 130-mile-per-hour wind warranty. Choose from over 40 options designed to protect your home for years to come. Save big on Shingles at Menards. And don't forget to check out our weekly ad on Menards.com. Save big money at ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. 
and so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.